President Biden told the nation last night that the State of the Union is strong. And in the rebuttal to his speech, Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders offered a very different take. Coming up, what is the state of the American economy? We'll fact check both speeches. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, new documents are revealing more about the case against five Memphis police officers charged in the death of Tyree Nichols. They either took a camera off, one of them put his camera on a car trunk, another one put the camera inside of a car. Also ahead, the earthquakes that rocked Turkey and Syria damaged the road the UN uses to get aid into northern Syria will have the effect on the recovery. And we'll hear about whether policy failures and building shortcuts in Turkey contributed to the death toll in the earthquake. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. It's now past midnight in Turkey and Syria, where darkness and frigid temperatures are complicating the search for earthquake victims trapped beneath rubble. Thousands of buildings in both countries collapsed in Monday's magnitude 7.8 earthquake and strong aftershocks. People are still being found alive, but experts say the first 72 hours for locating survivors are crucial, and that window is closing. The death toll now stands at more than 11,000. And Piers Peter Kenyon brings us the story of one operation where rescuers in Adana, Turkey are racing against time. In Adana's Chukurjuma district, dozens of rescuers gathered as heavy machinery lifted away slabs of concrete as an ambulance waited nearby. But what was loaded into the back was a green coffin. Standing nearby, Ur Dukanch tells the story of his now-deceased neighbors. He says they escaped to safety after the earthquake, but decided to run back into the building, which police had prohibited to retrieve some belongings, and three family members died in an aftershock almost as powerful as the earthquake. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says no one could prepare for such a devastating earthquake and called for solidarity. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adana, Turkey. President Biden is taking his post-State of the Union message to the key swing state of Wisconsin today. And Piers Windsor-Johnson reports the president made a further push for his economic plan to a group of union workers near Madison. President Biden used his speech to reiterate some of the themes he highlighted during his State of the Union address, including the creation of good-paying union jobs. For the first time in a long time, we're building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. The bottom up and the middle out with products made in America, with union labor. Not labor, union labor. I made it. The White House says companies have invested more than $4 billion in manufacturing across Wisconsin since Biden took office. The president also highlighted future infrastructure investments in the state, which include nearly $3 billion that has already been announced. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. In last night's speech, Biden spent noticeably less time on foreign policy, as NPR's Domenico Montanero reports. One thing that was a pretty clear difference for President Biden this year as compared to last year's State of the Union was that he didn't really make much mention of Ukraine. Uh, last year was really dominated by that in the start of that war. Uh, this year, he talked about it a bit and how he's going to be standing with Ukraine. He also made very little mention of China, just 200 words out of a 7,000-word speech when Biden and the White House see China as a growing uh, and top geopolitical threat. It really does show that he's likely going to be using bread and butter domestic issues as he gears up for a expected 2024 presidential campaign. NPR's Domenico Montanero. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill today to expand access to affordable child care. It's called the Child Care for Every Community Act. The Massachusetts Democrat says the measure would cap the cost of child care nationwide. Child care is wildly expensive, out of the range for many parents, and even parents who can pay often have a really hard time finding child care. Under Warren's plan, no one would pay more than 7% of their income on child care, and child care costs would be fully subsidized for American families who make less than 75% of their state's median income. In Massachusetts, she said, a family with a two-year-old and an infant with an income, a family income of $130,000 a year, would pay no more than $10 a day for child care. The federal government would pick up the rest of the tab. Warren's office did not say how the bill would be funded. New Hampshire lawmakers are considering a measure to grant public school students absences if they need to take time due to mental health issues. A woman whose son died by suicide in 2017 testified in favor of the bill yesterday. Martha Dickey says the measure would help reduce the stigma of mental illness. Twelve other states have the law or are considering a similar law. Grammy and Oscar-winning musician John Williams is celebrating his 91st birthday today. The former Boston Pops conductor and the composer is well known for his famous movie scores, including the theme from E.T., heard on this 1982 radio broadcast. That recording is one of more than 200 Williams conducted from the late 70s to the early 90s, which the Boston Symphony Orchestra is now digitizing. The orchestra announced today the process is nearly complete. The public will eventually be able to access the recordings online. And Governor Maura Healey is also celebrating her birthday today. She is back in the state after she attended the State of the Union address in Washington last night. Healey is 52 years old today. Her office says she spent the day attending budget meetings at the State House and will have a birthday dinner with her partner tonight. Tomorrow, the governor is heading back to Washington to attend the National Governors Association meeting that runs through Saturday. While she's out of state, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will be acting governor. 46 degrees in the Boston area. Beautiful day today. Clear skies tonight. Lows about freezing. For tomorrow, maybe some glimpses of sunshine early in the day, then lots of clouds later on. Mild again should be up in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden's State of the Union speech and the Republican response offered two very different views on the U.S. economy. Biden sketched a rosy picture on jobs for America, while Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders described a dumpster fire of runaway prices. Neither version is complete by itself, and neither captures Americans' complicated feelings about the economy. Here to fill in the gaps is NPR Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. So let's start off with the president. He boasted about low unemployment and a record number of new jobs. And here's some of what Biden had to say. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. More jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years. So, Scott, let's do a quick fact check. Are the president's numbers correct? 
The numbers are right, but they do need some context. Uh, Job growth has been strong. Last month alone, employers added more than half a million jobs. Unemployment's fallen to its lowest level since 1969. Of course, presidents don't get all the credit for creating jobs, and a lot of that growth reflects the rebound from a very sharp loss of jobs in the early months of the pandemic, a rebound that began before Biden took office. So it's not really accurate for him to say the economy was reeling when he was sworn in. Uh, It's true the recovery had temporarily stalled in that winter of 2020 when COVID was raging. Uh, The economy actually lost about a quarter million jobs the month before Biden's inauguration. But it quickly regained its footing as vaccines were rolled out, and it's continued a strong comeback ever since. As we said, Governor Sanders, who many may remember also served as press secretary for former President Trump, paints a much darker picture of the economy and the culture. Let's hear some of what she had to say last night. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. But you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another. Let's focus in on the gas and groceries part of that statement for a second. How much are people being crushed by rising prices? Inflation is a serious problem. Of course, gasoline prices hit a record high last summer. Uh, Overall, inflation topped out about the same time, above 9%. In Sanders' telling, that is entirely the fault of Democratic spending bills like the American Rescue Plan. Harvard economist Greg Mankiw, who served in the George W. Bush White House, offered a more nuanced assessment today at the Brookings Institution. I voted for Joe Biden, by the way, so I'm not here as a partisan. But I thought the American Rescue Plan was too big. Now, I don't think the aggregate demand was the full part of the inflation surge, but I think fiscal policy does deserve some of the blame for the inflation surge. Other factors behind inflation, of course, include the pandemic itself, which snarled supply chains and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Scott, looking at polls, they suggest that a lot of people just aren't feeling very good about the economy. Why is that? Yeah, a new Gallup poll shows half of all Americans believe their personal financial situation has gotten worse over the last year, while barely a third say they're better off. Inflation certainly a big part of that. More than six in 10 lower-income Americans say they're worse off, and lower-income families are particularly hard hit when gas prices go up or rents go up. Wealthier Americans may be unhappy because their stock portfolios took a beating last year, and, of course, worries about a possible recession may be casting a shadow as well. How is all of that impacting President Biden's approval rating? It's not good. Biden's overall approval rating is in the low to mid 40s. His approval rating on the economy is worse. But there is a chance for a turnaround here. Uh, As Biden himself stressed in the speech last night, uh, inflation is coming down. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 from their peak. Food inflation is coming down. Not fast enough, but coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months. Well, take-home pay has gone up. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said yesterday he also expects to see significant progress on inflation this year. And as gloomy as many people are about the economy right now, that Gallup poll does find some optimism about the future. Six in ten people say they expect to be in better financial shape a year from now. If so, moods could be a lot brighter right around the time of the 2024 election. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. One of the most memorable moments in President Biden's address came when he mentioned that some Republicans want to cut Medicare and Social Security before they'll vote to raise the debt ceiling. Republicans in the chamber booed loudly and called him a liar, and the president responded. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. 
Well, as NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin explains, there's another federal health program that may still be on the table for cuts. If you want to cut federal spending, as House Republicans say they do, there aren't so many places to look, says Larry Levitt, executive vice president for health policy at KFF. If you take Medicare and Social Security off the table and probably defense spending as well and tax increases, the next biggest chunk of the federal budget is Medicaid. Medicaid provides health insurance for low-income Americans. It's funded in part by states and in part by the federal government, and a lot of people are enrolled. Currently, more than one in four Americans, 91 million people, compared to 65 million in Medicare. There have been proposals to cap federal spending on Medicaid or convert it into a block grant to states for decades. I mean, this goes back to when Ronald Reagan was was president. Uh, And in every case, these proposals have failed because of substantial political pushback. Just ask the man currently looking for federal spending cuts, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. In 2017, when Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act and cut federal Medicaid spending, McCarthy told CNN this. We're not taking a benefit away. Nobody on Medicaid is going to be taken away. And in the end, the effort failed and Medicaid remained intact. Levitt says at the time, the cuts to Medicaid got opposition from a huge range of folks. From advocates for low-income people, from hospitals, from nursing homes, but also from governors, including Republican governors and some Republican senators as well. One reason? When low-income people lose their health coverage, they're more likely not to get early treatment when they need health care and to end up in the emergency room. The state often ends up paying for that very expensive care anyway. Health policy experts often use the analogy of a, of a water balloon. You know, you can, you can push on one part of the balloon. For example, you can try to reduce federal spending, but the money is going to show up somewhere else. And it's typically states and, and governors that are uh, on the hook for figuring out how, how to pay for health care for people. So he says even though Medicaid may not seem to be as politically untouchable as Medicare and Social Security, history has shown that it is, in fact, quite hard to cut. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Turning overseas, there is an extra challenge in getting earthquake aid to hard-hit Syria. It's caused by the strained relations between international donors and a regime still at war with some of its own people. Aid groups are having a tough time navigating the geopolitics to get help to areas controlled by opponents of the regime. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.N. has struggled for years to aid Syrians in the midst of the civil war, and the needs are skyrocketing in the wake of a devastating earthquake. We need generators. We need to replace and repair water pumps. We need to make sure that there is security. That's El Mustafa bin Lamli, a U.N. official based in Syria's capital, who's trying to get help to areas in the north affected by the earthquake. Just this morning, even here in Damascus, we had snow. There... They have snow, they have freezing cold weather, and they're living in terrible situation. 
That includes areas controlled by the government and the opposition. The Syrian government has a track record of blocking aid to rebel-controlled areas and has always insisted that the aid comes through Damascus. The UN is only allowed to use one aid route from Turkey to reach an opposition-held area, and the UN's regional humanitarian coordinator, Mohamed Hadi, is trying to make do. We are in the business of saving lives, so we ask for what we want and we do with what we get. If they give us one crossing point, we will we will do our best to save lives with that. But we would like to have more flexibility uh, to do more. The road used by UN aid workers from Turkey into northern Syria was damaged by the earthquake, though Hadi says some trucks are now poised to move in Thursday. Millions of Syrians uprooted by the war live just across the border and are dependent on outside aid, says Amar El Samo, a volunteer with the Syrian White Helmets, a rescue group that operates in opposition areas. We did not uh, expect help from the regime because the regime uh, was the starving people before. So people did not uh, expect to receive any help from the regime. Throughout the 12-year-long civil war in Syria, the government has besieged opposition-held cities, bombarded them, and even used chemical weapons, as a recent UN report confirmed. Under Secretary of State for Arms Control, Bonnie Jenkins addressed a Security Council meeting on that this week. It is not lost on us that many of the Syrian first responders now pulling civilians from the rubble were just a few years ago, helping civilians who had been burned or suffocated by the Assad regime's chemical weapons. Syria says it is U.S. sanctions that are hampering aid efforts, and Syria's ambassador to the U.N., Bassem Sabag, says his country is ready to aid all parts of the country. Any countries who wanted to provide the shelters, the food supply, the medications to the Syrians anywhere in Syria, we can Uh, help, we can support, we can work with. But he repeatedly brushed off questions about whether Syria would agree to open any other border crossings, calling that a matter of Syrian sovereignty. Anything under our control is ready and we are going to help on that. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the U.S. will continue to work with its partners in Syria, and that does not include the government. These partners who, unlike the Syrian regime, are there to help the people rather than brutalize them. U.N. officials are calling on everyone to put politics aside and think about the Syrian people first. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next on All Things Considered, 50 years of hip-hop fashion. And in 15 minutes, Memphis police charged in the death of Tyree Nichols are being accused of not activating their body cams and of sharing a photo of the injured man. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu. A slide for stocks today. The Dow lost six-tenths of a percent, 208 points, to end the session at 33,949. S&P fell about one and a tenth of a percent to finish at 41.18. The Nasdaq shed nearly one and three-quarters percent to end the day at 11,911. Boston-based food media brand America's Test Kitchen has been bought out. The company on the seaport is home to a cooking show, podcast, and several cookbooks. New York buyer Marquis Brands also 
owns brands of Martha Stewart and Fall River native Emerald Lagasse. The company today also installed a new CEO, former Roku executive Dan Surratt. Terms of the deal were not disclosed. Business news comes up with Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Save 10% through tomorrow at WBUR.org. 46 degrees now in the Boston area, down around freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine giving way to clouds eventually. Maybe an afternoon shower. High temperatures in the mid-40s once again. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritiv. Learn more at dynamedx.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. From the birth of hip-hop 50 years ago, the black and brown kids who created and reinvented the culture have always made it a point to dress well. Today, the biggest fashion houses in the world want to put their outfits on the biggest superstars in the world, rap artists. In hip-hop's early days in the 1970s, the looks might have aspired to such cachet, but were understandably less glamorous. A lot of it had to do with socioeconomic status and being able to wear uh, clothes of different brands really was dependent on how much money you had. Elena Romero is a longtime fashion journalist and now a professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. She's one of the curators of a new exhibit at the FIT Museum. It's called Fresh, Fly, and Fabulous, 50 Years of Hip-Hop Style. I said a hip and one of the first things you see in this exhibit is an outfit worn by an early breakdancing legend, the b-boy pop master Fable. So we're talking about Lee jeans with permanent creases down the front, pro-head sneakers, a belt buckle with Fable on the buckle. We have this beautiful fine-knit sweater and capped off with this white cap. He also includes leather gloves that he danced in. That's fashion historian and FIT co-curator Elizabeth Way. Inside the exhibit, mannequins sport dozens of outfits stacked on scaffolding two tiers high. But between limited edition sneakers and Cardi B's bedazzled nails, Way and Romero point out that early hip-hop pioneers found crafty and relatively affordable ways to stand out, like custom belt buckles or fat shoelaces. Which brings us to Dapper Dan. Sing 
market. Well, anybody who is anybody, if they were gonna get a custom outfit, they would head to Harlem to this 24 hour, seven day a week shop where you can get your one of a kind outfit made by Dapper Dan. The logos that he used at the time were the brands of luxury, of high fashion, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, MCM. But the catch was these were not styles that we would have seen on the runway or in your local department stores. This was something that he created. In other words, he was borrowing the luxury brand's logos and incorporating them into his original designs. It gave him a sense of luxury and wealth and status. Early entertainers that would be wearing them would include LL Cool J, Salt and Pepper. Growing up as a kid, we watched Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, yes. and that gave us an inside look as to what wealth would attain. It's that aspirational nature Very you're talking about again. aspirational. So we went from seeing it on TV, thinking it was far-reaching, to now our celebrities, these hip-hop personas, were doing exactly the things that we thought we could never do. If at first hip-hop artists were dressing themselves aspirationally, the fashion brands they were representing, or in some cases bootlegging, were forced to pay attention. By the 90s, hip-hop was showing up everywhere. It was on MTV Worldwide, and the musicians now had sway. And the growth of hip-hop also gave opportunities for Black-owned companies and designers, some of whom came from the music themselves. An all-black outfit catches my eye with slim-cut pants, shiny black shoes, and a furry bolero-style cropped jacket over a crisp button-down. It's from the musician-turned-mogul Diddy, also known as Sean Combs. So tell us about th this outfit. This is Sean John, right? Yes. So Sean John is a really important brand because I think that this brand did more than any other to kind of marry this idea of hip hop and mainstream fashion. And Sean Combs was the first designer of color to win the CFDA award for design, the first black designer. And this piece is from an, a runway collection that featured all black models. So he did a lot to change the mainstream fashion industry on 7th Avenue from this very stereotypical style that mainstream fashion looked on when they thought of hip hop fashion. What Sean did was not name his particular brand after a record label or a group, but rather now take on his personal name, which is quite risky, but at the same time, genius, because what he's doing is demonstrating his personal style and swagger to a mainstream international audience. I'm there, yeah. Been there, still there. At one end of the exhibit, there's a row of full-out glam outfits. These red carpet looks are far removed from the streetwear of 50 years ago. I'm way too exclusive, bound shop on Insta boutiques, all them little clothes only fit fake booties. I don't think we can leave this without talking about this incredible metallic gown here. These almost look like leaves or delicate feathers on this very structured shoulder, and there's a sequined bralette, and there's some exposed hips on the side. This is clearly worn by someone with some curves. 
This is Megan Thee Stallion's gown that she wore to the Met Gala. She came as the guest of Jeremy Scott, the designer of Moschino. So the Moschino made this custom gown for her. And she talked about how she really wanted to celebrate her body, her figure, her success and stature as a black woman. And so we see how hip hop artists have become the celebrities of choice for these very fashion focused, very glamorous events. Um, hip hop artists are the avant-garde icons pushing fashion forward. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how. One of the things that strikes me is that for both of you, this sounds like this is a collection that's incredibly personal. I mean, I wonder if each of you could talk just a bit about what it means to you to be curating this collection and having the world soon be able to see it and take it all in. Well, what's important for me is, you know, we think about what American style is, what American fashion is, and hip hop is such an integral part of that story. I think sometimes it's left out. So it's really important for me for people to come into this exhibition and realize all the ways that hip hop has affected the way they personally dress and all the looks they see around them. Hip hop fashion is real fashion. I think for so long it kind of gets downplayed because it's casual, it's denim, and because it's coming out of the world of youth. So many young black and, and brown people from the communities marginalized because of what they wear, how they wear it. Yeah. And most importantly, it's not just men's fashion. Women have always been and will continue to be part of this fashion legacy. And today it's the women that are the muses of the most luxurious designers of the world. I just want to say thank you for allowing us to get a sneak peek of this space and congratulations on an incredible collection. Thank you so much. Thank you and it's just a peek so you got to come back to see it all in its entirety. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey yeah, I want to shoot baby. Shoot. That was Elena Romero and Elizabeth Way, co-curators of the new exhibit at the FIT Museum in New York City. It's called Fresh, Fly and Fabulous. 50 years of hip hop style. The exhibit opens today. Uh, here I go, here I go, here I go again, uh, girls. Man. What's my weakness? Man. Okay, then chillin', chillin', mindin' my business. Right. You saw as I looked around and I couldn't believe this. I swear, I stand, my niece, my witness. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, the Celtics could be in big trouble tonight when they take on Philadelphia at the Garden. Celts big men Robert Williams and Al Horford are listed as questionable for the matchup against the 76ers and their all-star center Joel Embiid. On the plus side, the Celts say center Luke Cornett and Jalen Brown will suit up for tonight's game following recent injuries. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Opera Institute with Little Women, based on the beloved novel, February 23rd to 26th, bu.edu slash CFA. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by midnight tomorrow to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. During his State of the Union address last night, President Biden highlighted elements of climate change and his Inflation Reduction Act. NPR's Jeff Brady says now members of his cabinet are hitting the road to promote specific parts of that law. 
Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm plans to travel to Utah, Nevada, and Massachusetts in coming days to highlight work her department is doing. That includes loan guarantee programs for companies with emerging clean energy technologies. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan will be in Kansas to visit a school getting electric buses with federal help. He'll also visit a farm to spotlight agriculture-centered programs aimed at helping to meet the administration's goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade. Jeff Brady, NPR News. The president of Ukraine is in Western Europe asking for help ahead of an expected Russian offensive later this month. This was Volodymyr Zelensky's first visit to Britain since Russia invaded his country nearly a year ago. Speaking to Parliament, he thanked the UK for its grit and support and called on Western allies to provide combat aircraft to help win back Ukraine's freedom. The victory will change the world. And this will be a change that the world has long needed. After we win together, any aggressor, it doesn't matter, big or small, will know what awaits him if he attacks international order. The UK government, just ahead of his speech, promised to expand its training of the Ukrainian military by extending those efforts to include Marines as well as combat pilots. Stocks finished lower across the board today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 207 points. That's about half a percent. Tech-heavy Nasdaq lost 203 points, down one and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Mayor Michelle Wu says Boston's unemployment rate is back at pre-pandemic levels and workforce shortages are challenging employers. Mayor Wu made the remarks this morning in Boston to the New England Council. That's a gathering of regional business leaders. The mayor also took the opportunity to tout the city's legislative agenda, which includes a proposed municipal fee for some real estate transactions worth $2 million or more that would generate the type of sustainable funding pipeline to replace what we are currently using from federal recovery funds and ARPA funds, that will will be used up in the next two to three years. The mayor calls Boston's housing shortage the biggest threat to the region's economy. Boston's fee proposal is currently before state lawmakers. They have to approve the plan for it to take effect. The state's Cannabis Control Commission will meet tomorrow to talk about whether three pandemic-era policies will stick around. The existing rules allow for the prescription of medical marijuana by telemedicine and let medical marijuana dispensaries sell products curbside. The COVID rules were set to expire at the end of last year, but the commission has extended them until at least tomorrow's meeting. Artificial intelligence will be on the lookout for endangered whales off the coast of Massachusetts. Charles River Analytics is testing video cameras and electronic sensors that will help boat crews detect North Atlantic right whales in their vicinity and avoid collisions. Ross Eden is a scientist at the research firm. He has the job of teaching the AI and the cameras and sensors how to identify whales. He feeds the technology with photos of situations where whales are present, but the human eye can barely spot them. So we worked diligently on collecting representative data that showed whales that weren't just leaping out of the water, but were, again, just these challenging little um, slivers of back popping out. Eden says the project should be beneficial around Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard, where rails frequently come close to shore and offshore projects such as wind farms. It's 435. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org.
Sure was nice out there today. Mildish weather should stick around for a couple more days. Tonight clear, down around 32 degrees. Tomorrow clouds slowly move in for the majority of the day, right around the mid-40s again. And then temperatures should rise on Thursday night and wind up around 57 degrees on Friday. 46 degrees now in Boston at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. As President Biden hosted the parents of Tyree Nichols at the State of the Union, we've been learning new details about the alleged misconduct of the five Memphis police officers accused of killing Nichols. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi has been reviewing some newly released documents. And Martin, the terrible videos of officers beating Nichols last month have been public for a few weeks now. What new information are we learning? Well, Juana, what we have now are more details about the conduct charges that these officers faced from their supervisors. This is an administrative process that happened in mid-January. This is basically the evidence that the bosses relied on to fire them and also to get them decertified, which is what happens to police when they lose their right to work as police officers in that state. So can we assume that the worst allegation against them is murder? No, not in this context. That's going to be left up to the criminal justice system where these officers are facing second-degree murder charges. This process focused on their professional conduct, or lack thereof. Uh, it found that they broke department rules by using unreasonable and excessive force against Nichols, that they failed in their duty to intervene with other officers in this excessive force and to report that accurately. Ultimately, these documents paint a picture of officers with a very unprofessional attitude. Martin, what do you mean by that? Well, their apparent disdain for Nichols, uh, one detail that's already got some attention from these documents is that right after this beating, one of the officers, Demetrius Haley, is accused of taking cell phone photos of Nichols as he's slumped against the police car, and then texts of one of those photos to other people, including non-police officers. Uh, this review also focuses on several officers for laughing and bragging about the encounter right after it happened. Do these documents say anything about how these officers behaved, their conduct after the encounter happened? Well, in terms of professional conduct, that's where things get even worse. In several cases, the department accuses the officers of deceit. For example, one officer claimed that Nichols tried to grab his gun. Another officer says he heard his fellow officer saying that he was trying to grab his gun. But investigators say that wasn't corroborated by the body camera video. Investigators also say that the officers did not follow the rules on how to use those body cameras. In a couple of cases, they say that the officers took their cameras off, that one of them put his camera on a car's trunk, another one put his camera inside a car. Okay, and how serious of a breach of the rules is that not using a body camera properly? Well, in a case like this, it can be crucial. One of the big questions that we've been asking about this case is how it started. Why did they pull Nichols over? Uh, and apparently the first officer to put hands on him, Demetrius Haley, uh, he's the one we've seen aggressively pulling Nichols out of his car. He did not have his camera rolling at all at that point. So we don't see how things started. 
Okay, and I understand this investigation was not a criminal trial, which may still be coming, but did the officers involved have a chance to defend themselves? They had a chance, but most refrained from making official statements based on legal advice. The Memphis Police Association went on the record during the proceedings complaining about a lack of due process, saying that the officers didn't get a chance to see all the evidence against them, including some video. One officer, Justin Smith, did submit a written statement in which he says that Nichols was, quote, actively resisting and that he was just there to assist in the arrest and followed the training he'd gotten from the police department. I think as the criminal prosecutions get going here, what we're going to see is more sort of a fine point being made about which officer did what and when. NPR's Martin Costi, thank you. You're welcome. The deadly earthquakes in Turkey reminded Asla Aydin Tashbash of another moment almost 25 years ago. She was in Istanbul when a massive quake struck in 1999, killing more than 17,000 people. That disaster helped boost the political career of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's now Turkey's president. He's overseen a period of rapid growth and construction, which raises questions about whether policy failures and building shortcuts might have added to the growing death toll. Asla Aydin Tashbash is now a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Hi, Ari. Good to be here. This was undoubtedly a natural disaster. What are some of the factors that lead people to question whether human choices might have made the situation worse? Look, this was a big earthquake by any stretch of the imagination. We're looking into something that is of biblical proportions. But of course, understand that Turkey is on a seismic zone, two major fault lines, which means since the terrible earthquake in 1999, the entire country had been talking about earthquake. Like in Turkey, people know the names of main geologists, earthquake experts that often appear on television. Mm -hmm. And what was expected was that there would be a massive earthquake and that Istanbul is not prepared. People are quite angry, increasingly so, because of issues like slow reaction or 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 too centralized the reaction, which mm-hmm. prevents other NGOs and and some areas still really not reached. What specifically do you think could have been done in the last twenty plus years? I mean, what steps could have been taken? I mean, first of all. Everything has to go through central government, but the only entity that is allowed to do search and rescue is the government-sanctioned government entity. There's the decision-making issue that is too centralized. Local officials, local authorities don't really have much say. They need the government official body to come and do the aid distribution, do the search and rescue. And that just is just against human experience in terms of governance over centuries. We want these things decentralized for efficiency. So that speaks to the relief effort. What about all of the construction that happened under Erdogan's rule? Were there lessons that should have been learned from the 1999 disaster that weren't? Certainly. Turkey has depended so much uh, on construction as the crown jewel of of its economy, when you uh, are pushing for a growth model that depends on construction, that's like 
feeding your kid with chocolate cake only. That's A, an unhealthy way of development for an economy you want to actually value added growth, but B, it creates inevitably at the local level and at, at a bigger level, the kind of you know nepotism, corruption, et cetera, that comes with construction in any country. It's hard to talk about these things and yeah. the, so soon after this tragedy, but I think there will have to come a time when we talk about these things. We, I am a Turkish citizen, even though I live in the States, and we've been paying earthquake taxes for all this time. And people are questioning now, where has it gone to? Yeah. How much do you think political factors around the election are informing the response here? I think so much of the response is dictated by the awareness that elections are around the corner. The government is very keen on controlling the sort of what they see as emerging dissent on the ground and trying to control social media. Therefore, we're seeing now restrictions on Twitter, Turkey is slowing it down. And I think that oh, the government understands very clearly that how they respond to this earthquake is going to determine whether they stay in power or not. Asla Aydin Tashbash is a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In his State of the Union address last night, President Biden spent very little time on a foreign policy issue that's dominated the attention of the White House, that is, the war in Ukraine. It's a far cry from what happened during last year's address. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more on why the conflict took a backseat this time around. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Last year, when President Biden made his way to Capitol Hill for the State of the Union, it was just six days after Russia invaded Ukraine. Biden spent the first part of that speech zeroing in on one man, Russian President Vladimir Putin. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. There were long-standing ovations on both sides of the aisle. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Back then, when Biden looked over the House chamber, most of the lawmakers were waving or wearing the blue and yellow of Ukraine's flag. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. But last night, things were a lot different. Both Biden's message and the reception he received in Congress have changed. This year, it took more than an hour until Biden brought up the war. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, test for America, a test for the world. There was applause, but less of it. One thing was similar to last year. The Ukrainian ambassador was a guest of the president, a signal, Biden said, of the U.S. commitment to her country. Because we're going to stand with you as long as it takes. It was a reminder of the aid that the U.S. is giving Ukraine, more than $110 billion so far. And Ukraine wants more. That's a sensitive issue, especially among Republicans. Some strategists are worried this could turn into an issue for 2024 elections, particularly in House districts that lean more conservative. Republican strategist Ryan Williams. The key is to make sure that, that it doesn't become 
a big issue with Republicans, a litmus test issue, if you will, that could endanger incumbents um, who could face conservative primary challengers that may have a difference of opinion. There was another reason Ukraine played a smaller role in Biden's speech this year. The reality is that domestic issues are more important for middle class voters. And Biden is expected to soon announce a second run for the White House. This is not at the front of the American people's minds the way it was a year ago. Christine Berzinia studies U.S. security cooperation with Europe at the German Marshall Fund. She says that foreign policy is not going to get Biden many votes in 2024. While Americans are still worried about Russia, there's also concern about the cost of ongoing support for the war. So there's a more need to justify continued uh, support for Ukraine, and it's less shocking a year in, and that is just the reality. Biden promises the United States is not going anywhere, and the White House is making plans to mark the one-year anniversary of the invasion. Later this month, Franco Ordonez, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, many farms in California employ undocumented workers. The farms are slammed by the recent series of storms, and the undocumented workers are left without access to FEMA assistance. That story is coming up in just about a minute. And tonight at 7 o'clock, join us for On Point. American English has many forms that evolved over 400 years. Humanities professor Elon Stavin says that's because it's so adaptable. Language in a fractured nation. Tonight at 7 o'clock at 90.9 WBUR. Listen at the end of your workday on the radio or on the WBUR app. A beautiful day leading to a clear night tonight. Lows around freezing. Tomorrow could be some shots of sunshine early in the day before clouds eventually move in. The off chance of rain in the afternoon tomorrow should be mild again, up in the mid-40s. The unseasonably mild temperatures should continue into Friday when it could move up to the mid-50s. 46 degrees now in Boston at 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by downtown Boston's new Third Space. Pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash thirdspace. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by midnight tomorrow and save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology 
as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nine atmospheric rivers pummeled California in the last month. Much of the damage was concentrated on the coast, but the storms were so powerful that they also hit farm workers 100 miles inland. As the state begins to recover, many undocumented residents are struggling to access assistance. Vanessa Roncaño from member station KQED reports. Husband and wife Rufino and Esmeralda came to the rural Central Valley town of Planada 15 years ago in search of better opportunities. They asked that we use only their first names because they're undocumented and fear deportation. They worked in the local field, almonds, grapes, figs, tomatoes. They saved up to start a small business selling popsicles and snacks. The flood took out everything, their livelihood and much of their home. Rufino stands in his driveway, assessing the mold starting to grow on the still damp seats of his ice cream truck. He says the water destroyed five commercial freezers full of merchandise, plus the truck, around $23,000 in damage. Inside the house, Esmeralda points out cabinet drawers warped from the water. For now, Rufino and Esmeralda have moved into an apartment at a migrant farmworker housing complex on the edge of town. They're among 40 families temporarily relocated there. Like many other undocumented immigrants in Planada, they still haven't gotten significant financial help. Overall, early estimates showed nearly a quarter of homes here were damaged. All day, people drive down the main street in trucks loaded with beds, sofas, refrigerators. They unload everything into dumpsters lining the road. All these dumpsters have people's lives in it. From the sidewalk, longtime resident Alicia Rodriguez looks on. The losses are especially painful for a community where the poverty rate is almost three times higher than the state as a whole. Rodriguez is one of the local volunteers collecting and distributing donations. Clothes, socks, shoes. She's running a makeshift resource center out of a vacant commercial space. Air mattresses for those that are sleeping on the floor. We're going to be doing microwaves. But the big help, the kind that will rebuild a damaged home and replace its contents, that's left to private insurance or federal disaster assistance from FEMA. And Rodriguez says many residents here can't turn to either because to get help from FEMA, you need a social security number. They're slipping through the cracks. Local leaders estimate as many as half of residents in Planada are undocumented. What I see here is that a lot of them are not going to probably get the FEMA because they're not applying. Federal and local officials say undocumented residents can get help as long as someone in the home has a valid social security number. Often, that means U.S.-born kids. We strongly encourage those individuals to take advantage of the opportunity and come open a claim. Sharon Wardale-Trejo is a Merced County spokesperson who's been trying to get that message out. In the first two days after FEMA opened a recovery center in Planada, she says a total of 45 households filed claims. She sees that as progress. So we're seeing an incremental increase as probably the word gets out there that, hey, you know what, it was okay, and they were able to help me. But for some, that help is out of reach. In what's left of Rufino and Esmeralda's living room, they point out their son Jesus's high school diploma, one precious possession the floodwaters spared. Jesus is a freshman at UC Berkeley, in many ways living out the promise that brought them to this country. 
but their American-born son can't help them here. Because he's no longer living at home, they can't use his social security number to apply for aid. Rufino says he's the reason they want support, to help him get ahead. They tried multiple times to get help from FEMA and the Small Business Administration, but got turned away. If they can't get aid, he says, they'll have no choice but to go back to working in the fields. No nos queda otra. They'll keep looking for help. They were told to turn to charitable organizations, but so far, he says, all they've gotten is a $250 gift card. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Planada. Syrians are in desperate need of help after the earthquake that shook the region this week. But while supplies are being shipped in, there are big challenges in getting it to the people in need. NPR's Aya Batrawi contacted someone there, documenting the hardships they face. A huge crowd chants, Allahu Akbar, God is great. A boy is pulled from under the rubble of his home by civil defense volunteers three days after the earthquake. He's the sole survivor of his family. Karam Kalia shot that moving video in the opposition-held part of northwestern Syria, a devastated region that's home to four million people displaced by the country's decade-long civil war. I reached him today by phone. He was in Jindaris, a part of Aleppo where he says almost no building has been left standing. He says international humanitarian aid hasn't arrived some 72 hours after the earthquake. He says people are just waiting for any help to arrive to help them get through this catastrophe. Kalia says families are living in the streets in the freezing cold because homes in Jindaris and other areas like it that didn't already collapse could fall at any moment from the aftershocks. He says it's a disaster, a disaster for the women and children. Right now what it comes down to is just pure logistics, getting the supplies prepared, getting the charter flights organized. That's Robert Blanchard, the team leader at the World Health Organization's global logistics hub in Dubai. The group has 20 warehouses here filled with medical supplies. They have stacks of boxes labeled for child body bags to be sent to Syria. His team has already loaded two cargo planes with emergency supplies like surgical tools, medicine, anesthesia, IV drips, stints, and stretchers. One plane is going to Damascus, Syria, where the government is handling logistics and aid for the areas under its control. The other plane is headed to Turkey so that supplies can be routed into the rebel-held areas of Syria where people like Kalia are and where the government has hindered aid throughout the war. I ask if he knows how that aid will get there. I don't. It's very uncertain. The border can close periodically. The weather conditions are now not looking so great. So it just depends on the condition of the roads, the availability of the trucks, and then the permission to cross the border and deliver the humanitarian aid. The scale of the devastation in Turkey and Syria has overwhelmed response efforts, and the hope of finding people alive is diminishing with every hour. It's why aid organizations and volunteers are still racing against the clock. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. 
Galileo spotted the first moons around Jupiter more than 400 years ago. And astronomers keep finding more and more. As of this week, Jupiter has eclipsed Saturn and shot to the top of the leaderboard with 92 moons, some of which are about half a mile across, just little flecks of light in the sky. Come back to All Things Considered tomorrow for more on Jupiter's newest moons and why scientists hope to get a close-up look at one. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at EBSCO.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight should be clear and calm right around freezing. Tomorrow sees the return of the gray. Clouds should increase through the day with highs right back up around 45. Temperatures creep to the low 50s tomorrow night and then the mid-50s on Friday. 46 degrees now in Boston. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. work together the last Congress, there's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. President Biden exudes optimism in his State of the Union speech. Do first-year members of Congress feel the same way? We'll hear from a couple of them coming up. It's Wednesday, February 8th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in Turkey and Syria, the death toll soars, the cold continues, and rescue teams dig at the rubble as the window for saving people from the massive earthquake that hit this week is closing. And later this hour, basketball's LeBron James now holds the NBA's record for the most points scored. What LeBron has done basically better than everybody is no one has been this great for this long. Coming up, James's record-breaking night this is WBUR. It's 5.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. On the heels of the State of the Union address last night, where he exhorted Republicans to work with him to put finishing the job of rebuilding the U.S. economy and uniting the country, Biden today taking his message on the road, traveling to the state of Wisconsin. The president showed he is willing to push back against the prospect of a GOP-controlled House, potentially cutting either Medicare or Social Security, and he brought that issue up again today. A lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me just say this. It's your dream, but I'm going to my veto pen make it a nightmare. Biden referring to the moment last night as a spirited debate taking place in real time during the State of the Union. The president also continues to promote his message on the resilience of the U.S. economy, which was also a prominent part of his speech. 
Google unveiled details today of its new AI-powered search engine at a company event in Paris. As NPR's Bobby Allen explains, it comes a day after Microsoft released the first major online search tool driven by AI. The online search wars are on. Google's soon-to-be-released tool is called BARD. It will allow people to search the web in new ways, get answers quickly to complex questions, and be able to hold a human-like conversation with a search bot. Outside Seattle, Microsoft executive Youssef Mehdi says its own AI search product, using Bing, relies on technology like the viral AI bot hit ChatGPT. Search hasn't changed in two decades, pretty much. It's the same thing that we all know. Blue links on a page, algorithmic approach. Today starts a new a new race with AI at the core. Microsoft is trying to put a dent in Google's search dominance by tapping into the AI craze. 85% of online searches are done on Google. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Redmond, Washington. Prosecutors for an international investigative team say Russian President Vladimir Putin was likely involved in the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over eastern Ukraine in 2014. 298 people were killed. NPR's Tim Mack reports investigators say they've uncovered an intercepted phone call. Investigators say this newly released call shows strong indications that Putin personally approved the delivery of weapons used to shoot down the commercial flight, ending the lives of nearly 300 people. The joint investigation team probing the incident has been working for eight and a half years, led by the Netherlands and supported by the governments of Malaysia, Ukraine, Australia and Belgium. A Dutch court has already sentenced three men to life in prison in absentia for their roles. However, investigators say the current evidence does not reach the high bar necessary to prosecute additional individuals and that Putin himself has legal immunity under Dutch law as a head of state. Russia has denied involvement in the past. Tim Mack, NPR News, The Hague. Stocks slid today as investors continue to mull over earnings reports. The Dow dropped 207 points. The Nasdaq was down 203 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA may be stripped of its power to operate the commuter rail and ferries. State Representative William Strauss has filed a bill that would leave the T with the responsibility to run only the bus and subway systems. Commuter rail would be operated under the state's Department of Transportation. The ferry system would fall under a new regional port authority. Strauss says the proposal is in response to safety problems on the T. He says a smaller organization with a more targeted mission would benefit the state. The T says it has no comment on the proposal. A new task force will begin to study the lasting effects of racism in Boston. Members of the city's reparation task force were announced yesterday. The group will consider ways to make reparations to descendants of people who were enslaved. The task force chair, Joseph Feaster, is calling for people to keep open minds. The discussion of reparations is not new. It's been around for some time. It's been around and raised in Congress. It's been around and raised in other states. So it's not something that's new. But I hope that uh, folks will approach this in the appropriate manner and uh, allow the discourse to take place. The group will deliver its recommendations to Mayor Michelle Wu in two years. Massachusetts Gaming Commission is weighing the intent of voters as it considers whether to approve Encore Boston Harbor's proposal to expand. At issue was the language of a ballot question Everett voters approved in 2013 that said the casino would be on the former Monsanto chemical site. Encore now wants to expand onto a site across the street from its existing location. Casino officials say they found evidence the site in question was once used by Monsanto's predecessor, so the expansion should be approved. Everett City lawyers told the commission today the city opposes holding a new election on the matter. New Hampshire lawmakers are considering a bill to grant K-12 students 
absences if they need to take time off to address mental health issues. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. A woman whose son died by suicide in 2017 testified in favor of the bill before the state's education committee yesterday. Martha Dickey argued the measure would help reduce the stigma of mental illness. She says students should not have to fear negative consequences to their education if they miss classes for a mental health concern. The bill has garnered bipartisan support in New Hampshire's state house. Twelve other states have similar laws on the books, including Maine, Connecticut, and California. Similar bills have also been proposed in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. In the forecast, the relatively mild weather should stick around for a couple more days. Tonight, still clear, down around 32. Tomorrow, clouds slowly move in for the majority of the day, right about the mid-40s once again. Temperatures should rise tomorrow night into the 50s, wind up around 57 degrees on Friday. Again, 46 degrees now in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Turkey, rescue crews looking for people trapped by Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake are entering a grim phase, finding more dead bodies than survivors. More than 11,000 people have been killed by the quake in Turkey and northern Syria. NPR's Peter Kenyon is reporting from the city of Adana and joins us. Hi, Peter. Hi, Ari. Tell us what you saw today in terms of the recovery effort. Well, I saw a city where a number of areas look fine, but some neighborhoods are scarred by cracked, tilting, or totally collapsed buildings. Uh, In one case, I saw a tower block that had literally been ripped in half vertically. Uh, One side of the building was standing up, didn't look too bad, but the other lay crumbled in pieces of rubble beside it. Uh, Similar scenes, of course, are playing out across the border in Syria, where thousands more people died. Uh, Turkey's trying to open two more border crossings to deliver aid to Syria. But here in Adana, I also saw scenes of fearful family members watching large rescue crews carefully picking slabs of concrete from a collapsed building. Uh, Inside, they believed were survivors waiting to be rescued. Unfortunately, in that case, what I saw was crews finding corpses instead of survivors and anxious family members turning away in despair. Can you tell us anything about some of the people who died in that neighborhood? Well, I was in the Chukajuma district uh, here in Adana, and I was watching the effort to clear away rubble from an apartment building uh, when I had a conversation with a man who said he lived in that building uh, and had escaped safely, but he had a sad story about his neighbors. Uh, The man, Omer Nigdeliolu, said his neighbors had escaped to safety at the same time he did, But then they made a fatal mistake. Here's a bit of what he told me. He said they were all outside and fine, but then his neighbors, against the orders of the police, decided to run back into the building to retrieve some belongings. And that's when they got caught in a violent shake and were killed. Uh, I'm sure that won't be the last sad story we hear from this earthquake. Hmm. And we're entering this phase now where experts believe fewer and fewer survivors will be found. Can you sense that change among the people you talk to? Yes. Uh, As you can imagine, there's a dominant theme, of course, of shock and sadness, knowing that as bad as what they're looking at is, other cities, towns and villages in Turkey have suffered even greater damage. Uh, But yes, there's a growing anger at the Turkish government as well for not being better prepared for another big quake. 
And, and you know, this is an issue that goes back many years. Turkey's always been vulnerable to earthquakes. Huge efforts are put forward to improve the chances of survival for people in Turkey. There was a deadly earthquake in 1999, about this same size, killed more than 17,000 people. Uh, that really galvanized efforts to do better. Major projects, widespread shoring up of buildings, a number of things. But once again, they proved to be of little avail in Monday's quake. How is the Turkish president responding to the criticism as he speaks to the people of his country, particularly given that he faces re-election in a few months? Well, that's right. That, that is the bigger context for him, at least. And he's been sounding very much on the defensive. First of all, he was quiet for the first two days after the quake, didn't say much of anything about it. Uh, today, he did visit some of the hardest hit sites, uh, but his main message appeared to be that this was a force majeure, an event so powerful that no defense against it was possible. Uh, and in the meantime, opposition politicians are very critical of Erdogan, saying he only visited the hard-hit sites after the main secular opposition leader basically taunted him. The opposition was rebuilding, helping to work with communities to repair some of the damage. And the opposition leader, who could be in line to challenge Erdogan in presidential elections, was harshly critical. And at the same time, uh, some commentators seem astonished that Erdogan's tone, surprised that the president would speak out at a time of national tragedy and sorrow, by lashing out at those who were criticizing him. Now many are wondering how he'll proceed when it comes to standing for another term in office. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Adana, Turkey. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. LeBron James has made thousands and thousands of shots in his NBA career. Layups, dunks, three-pointers, free throws. Last night, it was a fadeaway jump shot that made history. LeBron James has shot in history. <laughs> The previous NBA leader in total points scored was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He held the record for 34 years, and he was courtside to congratulate his successor. As NPR's Jason Fuller explains, James and Abdul-Jabbar took different paths to making history. It's hard to imagine what 38,387 points looks or sounds like. But for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, it's safe to say it involved a lot of skyhooks. Ford sends it to Kareem. Skyhook up and good. Lakers win. Score it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He estimated in an interview with astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson that three quarters of his points came from his signature shot. He had the skyhook down to a science. Everything I learned, uh, you know, had to do with learning the mechanics of the shot. You don't have to know where the ball is. You got to keep your eye on the basket, but you don't have to have your eye on the ball. Combine an unstoppable shot with the distinct size advantage, he's over seven feet tall, and you get a long way to understand Kareem's dominance and his all-time scoring record, the one LeBron James just broke. So we're talking about one of the more hallowed records. Um, however, in LeBron's case, it's not really a scoring record. Um, it's a longevity record. Brian Windhorst is a basketball journalist and has written three books about LeBron. He remembered watching LeBron at a camp for top high school players, along with coaches from major college programs and NBA executives. LeBron didn't just play well. He was far and away the best player, and it wasn't debatable. Literally every top basketball evaluator in the country had made up their mind that he would have been the number one pick in the NBA draft as a 16-year-old. The talent, size, explosiveness, and acumen was and remains apparent. But what's propelled LeBron to today's record is endurance. 
This is a record that is masquerading as about being the greatest scorer, but he's not really the greatest scorer. He's not the best shooter in NBA history. He's not the best free throw shooter. What LeBron has done basically better than everybody is no one has been this great for this long. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar himself logged over 20 full seasons in the NBA. And LeBron James, now 38 years old, is also now in his 20th season. But LeBron broke the record in roughly 150 fewer games than Kareem played. He's just scored more per game. What we're witnessing now is incredible in that LeBron James is putting up the kind of numbers that you would have expected to see from him when he was 21, 22 years old, only he's doing it at age 38. Sean Devney is a writer for The Heavy and is the author of The History of the NBA in 12 Games, from 24 seconds to 30,000 three-pointers. Devney remembered covering the 2003 NBA Finals, the year before LeBron entered the league. The games were low-scoring. And I remember Greg Popovich after the game, the Spurs were in it. Uh, Greg Popovich after the game said we just set uh, NBA basketball back uh, 15 years. Actually, the opposite happened. Devney said that the NBA game changed, due in part to teams doing data analysis. They started playing faster, which suited LeBron's explosiveness and his ability to draw fouls. Here comes James in the open floor. James grabbed from behind. Count it! He's taken 1,600 more free throw attempts than Kareem. And teams also encourage players to pass up mid-range two-point jump shots and try to make more three-pointers. And Howard, LeBron James can to three. LeBron James lines it up, and he buries it. James, heat check. Oh, yeah! Throughout his career, LeBron worked to improve his outside shooting. Kareem, on the other hand, only made one three-point shot, ever. The three-point line didn't even exist until midway through his career. What's truly scary is that LeBron has hinted at sticking around long enough to play with his son, Bronny. I need to be on the floor with my boy. I got to be on the floor with Bronny. That would be the icing on the cake. Meaning we could be looking at around 45,000 total career points, an awfully high bar for anyone trying to grab the crown from King James. Jason Fuller, NPR News. Now, a story of unconditional giving. Back in 2020, as the United Kingdom was locking down from the pandemic, 16-year-old Seren Jones was in the hospital in Cardiff, Wales. She didn't have COVID, but her kidneys were failing. Her father, 69-year-old Arvon Jones, says things were dire. They removed one of her kidneys, and she immediately then was seriously ill with pneumonia. We didn't know whether she was going to get through it, to be quite honest with you. Two months later, Seren had her other kidney removed. She was on hemodialysis for a while after that, but then on peritoneal dialysis, which meant that she was stuck to a machine for 10 hours every night. It wasn't a nice experience for a young girl. Seren desperately needed one good kidney, but she was adopted and her parents weren't a match. So they joined the living donors list through the UK's National Health Service. So my kidney might be a match for somebody somewhere else in the UK. They might have a relative who has a kidney who's a match for somebody else. And it comes round in a circle to Seren, but that didn't actually happen. 
After months on dialysis, Saren found a match outside the circle. That meant Arvon could take his name off the donor list, but that's not what he did. The first thought that crossed my mind, and, and it was as if I heard God's voice telling me there's another Seren out there somewhere that needs your kidney. So he stayed on the list, and in December, he donated a kidney to a stranger. He hasn't heard from the person who now has his kidney, and he has no plans to meet them. I'm not expecting that. I'm quite comfortable with the fact that I've been able to give somebody a nice Christmas present. Arvon Jones says he's feeling fine after his surgery, and Seren's new kidney has, quote, totally transformed her life for the better. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, President Biden's State of the Union speech through the eyes of two first-year members of Congress on opposite sides of the aisle. And in about 20 minutes, a pandemic program that increased food subsidies across the country is ending. So what happens to the college students who rely on it? These stories and much more still ahead. On Wall Street, a slide for stocks today. The Dow lost six-tenths of a percent, 208 points, to end the session at 33,949. S&P fell about one-and-a-tenth percent to finish at 41.18. The Nasdaq shed nearly one-and-three-quarters percent to end the day at 11,911. The celebrated dessert company Milk Bar is closing its only location in the area this month. Milk Bar is part of the dessert empire founded by Christina Tozzi. A company spokesperson says Milk Bar has to make way for a new tenant in the space on Brattle Street in Harvard Square, Cambridge. The bakery chain specializes in cakes and cookies with flavors such as cereal milk and funfetti. It opened in Cambridge in 2019. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. And Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your lifelong commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% through tomorrow at WBUR.org. A beautiful day today is leading to a clear night tonight. Lows around freezing. Tomorrow, some shots of sunshine in the morning. Then clouds move in. Maybe a shower in the afternoon. Mild again, up around the mid-40s. 46 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. As President Biden addressed a divided Congress last night, he repeatedly appealed to lawmakers to finish the job on his wide-ranging agenda. Let's finish the job and get more families access to affordable, quality housing. Let's come together to finish the job on police reform. Let's finish the job and ban these assault weapons. Let's finish the job this time. Let's cap the cost of insulin for everybody at $35. 
However unlikely some of those priorities are now with the Republican-controlled House, the president urged his GOP counterparts to identify areas for compromise. If we could work together the last Congress, there's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. That line got a head nod and a polite hand clap from Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But other moments laid bare the political tensions at play, earning Biden shouts and jeers from Republicans. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Witnessing all that drama in person last night were my next two guests, Democrat Maxwell Frost from Florida and Republican Mike Lawler from New York. They're two of the newest members of Congress, and we've been checking in with them as they navigate their first few months in the House. We'll start today with Congressman Frost. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So last night you attended your first State of the Union as a member of Congress. Tell us, what was it like being in the House chamber as the president spoke to members of Congress like yourself as well as the country? I mean, it was surreal. Uh, I'm used to being in an apartment, listening in with some friends. um, And just now, fast forwarding to this year, being in the chamber, being surrounded by um, some of my freshman colleagues and uh, being there, feeling that energy in person and the the good energy and uh, also, you know, some of the negative energy. I mean, it was the, ent- the entire thing was surreal. But I will tell you that the House was definitely bumping for the president and uh, in the message that he brought. You tweeted out a selfie from last night, pointing out that you were wearing a March for Our Lives pin on your suit jacket. And you and I first met when you were working for that group, which emerged after the high school shooting in Parkland, Florida. And President Biden did address gun violence last night. Can you just tell us what you thought of what you heard from the president? I mean, I thought what he said was great. Um, You know, we do need to ban assault weapons. um, But we also, you know, I always ask the question, what's next, right? What's the marker that the president has set down? Um, And I was a little disappointed to not hear him talk about specific actions that he would take. uh, But overall, it was just great to hear him champion it. Throughout the speech, President Biden seemed quite optimistic that the House can work together in a bipartisan manner over these next two years. But I'd like to ask you, now that you're a month into the job as a member of Congress, do you see any ways that people on both sides of the aisle can work together, how the temperature can be turned down to the benefit of all Americans? Well, yeah, I mean, what would need to happen is people would need to take a step back, put um, the politics aside and really focus on policy. There are Republican members that I think are really down to work on bipartisan legislation that's going to be helpful. But if you think Speaker McCarthy is going to bring anything to the floor that's actually going to change people's lives in a meaningful way in terms of bold legislation, then uh, then we (laughs) then you're wrong. And uh, and unfortunately, that's the reality we're dealing with. I'd like to ask you, if I could, about the politics within your own party. This is a speech that seemed to preview themes that could become a part of an expected 2024 presidential campaign by President Biden. Is the message that you heard from the president at the Capitol one that you believe can win over voters, even some Democrats within your own party who are not sold on him as the right person for the job in 2024? I do. Some of the loudest people last night in terms of clapping and excitement were progressives in the House. Uh, The president, I think, really laid out our values, laid out what we believe in and what values we're not going to compromise. And I think most people agree with that. And that's why when we see the polls from the speech last night and people who watched it, overwhelmingly, people were excited about that speech and agree with the messaging. And I think it really, you know, it cut through the television and hit to, you know, people sitting in their living rooms and 
and all the issues that impact folks, especially working families. That is Democratic Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Next, I want to bring in Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York, who's also a freshman lawmaker. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this was your first State of the Union as a member of Congress. What was it like? Well, listen, I've watched uh, almost every State of the Union for as long as I've been alive. And uh, it was a a wonderful experience uh, to be there. And uh, all the more special, my wife, an immigrant from uh, Moldova, uh, who became a citizen two years ago, uh, was uh, my guest. And so she was able to uh, listen to the President of the United States deliver his State of the Union. And it was on a personal level, a very uh, exciting and proud moment. During the speech last night, the president said over and over again, he used the phrase, let's finish the job. And he was suggesting that though the Congress is divided, there's still a possibility of being able to work together to accomplish major legislation. Do you agree with that? Well, I certainly agree. There's uh, a lot of opportunity to work together. And throughout the speech, I certainly applauded uh, numerous things that he talked about, including the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But to be honest with you, I was a little disappointed. It's not enough to just talk about it, uh, but to really lay out an agenda where we can work together. And I think it was a missed opportunity, uh, frankly. And uh, I, I think really where uh, it was unfortunate was during the discussion on the debt ceiling, uh, when he uh, blatantly misstated the Republican position uh, by saying that we're going to gut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, I am long on the record saying that I will not support any legislation to do that. Uh, but more importantly, the speaker is on the record uh, saying that we are not going to do that. So I, I think that was very disingenuous and unfortunate. And that was a moment that prompted a great deal of response from a number of your Republican colleagues. And I have to say, I've also spent much of my life watching State of the Union addresses, covering these speeches, and it it sounded and looked different than speeches I've heard in the past. What was that moment like for you in the House chamber? Well, frankly, to some degree, uh, I think the president enjoyed the the back and forth and kind of played into it a little bit. Look, I think the president missed an opportunity last night to to really forge uh, a, a path forward, both in tone in style and in substance. You have mentioned several times that this speech was a missed opportunity, but you've also mentioned that there were several bipartisan achievements that you heard in the speech that you were able to applaud. I am curious, can you give me an example or two of where you see opportunity for Republicans and Democrats to work together? Well, absolutely. I think when you look at our debt ceiling crisis, we're going to need to work together. Uh, There is no longer one party rule in Washington. So Democrats and Republicans have to come together to work on the big issues that we're dealing with, whether we're talking about the debt ceiling, whether we're talking about immigration, uh, the problems at our border. These are challenges that we have to work together on. uh, And I'm very much committed to doing that. Um, But I think, you know, last night, the president could have really laid out some concrete proposals about how we do that. And I didn't hear that. And I think that was in large part where the missed opportunity was to to forge that path forward. That was Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Thanks so much. Thank you. And earlier, I spoke with Democratic Representative Maxwell Frost of Florida, two of the newest members of the House of Representatives.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 46 degrees now falling to freezing overnight tonight, gradually turning cloudy tomorrow in the mid-40s again. Slow clearing on Friday, venturing into the mid-50s. Celtics could be in big trouble when they take on the Philadelphia 76ers tonight at the Garden. Celts big men Robert Williams and Al Horford are listed as questionable for the matchup against the 76ers and their all-star center Joel Embiid. On the plus side, the Celts say Luke Cornett and Jalen Brown will suit up for tonight's game despite their recent injuries. Tip-off is at 7.30 tonight. It's 5.30. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by midnight tomorrow to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken says the administration has shared information it's recovered about China's spy balloon with dozens of countries around the world. Now, we'll also share relevant findings with Congress as well as with our allies and partners around the world. Senior administration officials are on the Hill this week, and we already shared information with dozens of countries around the world, both from Washington and through our embassies. We're doing so because the United States was not the only target of this broader program, which has violated the sovereignty of countries across five continents. Blinken says similar balloons passed over the U.S. territory on four occasions during the Trump as well as Biden administration, but he refused to provide any further details about those encounters. In Pennsylvania, three special elections have just determined which party controls the state house of representatives there. This comes several months after the midterm contests, as NPR's Laura Benshoff tells us, Democrats will officially run the chamber for the first time in over a decade. Last November, Democrats did better than expected in state house races from Michigan to Pennsylvania. But in the Keystone State, the majority they won was slim, just one seat. That meant that three vacancies caused by the death of a legislator and two others leaving for new positions left the chamber temporarily in GOP hands. Discord ensued and no legislation could advance. In special elections this week, Democrats swept races for the three open seats in the western part of the state. The PA House Democrats tweeted in victory that they've now won the majority, quote, for a second time in a row. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street as tech shares led the way lower, with Google's parent company, Alphabet, the biggest drag on the tech sector. Uh, The Nasdaq was down one and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill in Washington today to expand access to affordable child care. She says the Child Care for Every Community Act would cap the cost of child care across the country. Child care is wildly expensive, out of the range for many parents and even parents who can pay often have a really hard time finding child care. Under Warren's plan, no one would pay more than 7% of their income on child care, and the cost would be fully subsidized for American families who make less than 75% of the state's median income. 
Warren says in Massachusetts, a family with a two-year-old and an infant and a family income of $130,000 a year would pay no more than $10 a day for child care. The federal government would pick up the rest of the tab. Her office did not say how the bill would be funded. A bill on Beacon Hill would give people more reason to subscribe to their local newspaper. The tax credit plan would reimburse residents up to $250 a year for the cost of subscriptions. State Representative Jeff Turco filed the bill last month. He says the credit would effectively allow people to subscribe to their local papers for free. In theory, it will promote community support for these newspapers, increase the subscription base, which will put a lot of these smaller newspapers on a sounder financial footing. To qualify for the credit, the paper needs to primarily publish original local content and must employ at least one journalist who lives in the community covered. Governor Maura Healy is celebrating her birthday today. She's back in Massachusetts after she attended the State of the Union address in Washington last night. Healy is 52 years old today. Her office says she spent the day attending budget meetings at the State House and will have a birthday dinner with a partner tonight. Tomorrow, the governor heads back to Washington to attend the National Governors Association meeting that runs through Saturday. While she's out of state, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will be acting governor. Clear skies into the night tonight. Light winds down around 32 degrees at the lowest. Tomorrow, sunshine should give way to cloudy skies. Maybe a shower in the afternoon in the mid-40s again. Clouds on Friday, then slow clearing in the afternoon. Breezy and weirdly warm again. Could reach 57 on Friday. Looks like it should be sunny over the weekend, down around 40 degrees. 46 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tehran, where we have a rare opportunity today to put questions to one of Iran's most senior officials. We've just walked up to the gates of the foreign ministry, this big yellow compound, yellow brick compound in central Tehran. We have had so many questions on the ground here in Iran about the anti-government protests that have rocked this country. Hundreds of people have been killed. We also have questions about Iran's relations with the rest of the world. And today, Iran's top diplomat, that is the foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, has agreed to take our questions. Once inside, we climbed from one waiting area to the next and finally settled inside a cavernous meeting room, a giant map of Iran and the region above us. What you are about to hear is Amir Abdullahian speaking through an interpreter. We have edited for concision and clarity. We have not internally edited his answers. I'll start with the news. Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei has announced he is pardoning tens of thousands of people arrested in the anti-government protests. Why and why now? Um, in the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. At this very outset, allow me to point out that when you say tens of thousands have been detained, well, this is not exactly accurate. 
At this, I say categorically. Um, first of all, no student whatsoever was detained um, at the universities or premises of the universities during the riots. In fact, those who were detained were people who played a role in the riots on the streets. Um, that being said, hundreds were carried away, and um, um, on, in, on that basis, they uh, acted um, in riots. On the occasion of the victory of the Islamic revol um, Revolution, these people, hundreds of uh, people who have been detained, were Pardoned. The supreme leader of the Islamic Revolution pays special attention to the issue of clemency and mercy. And therefore, the decree is to release all these um, detainees, save for those who have committed murder or other serious crimes. The number that I cited, tens of thousands of people being pardoned, is the one that was cited by Iranian state media. And the number of thousands of protesters being detained is not mine. That is coming from human rights groups and from the United Nations, which is estimating that thousands of people here have been detained since September. Hundreds of people have been killed and four people executed. I guess we see some sort of overstatement in these figures. Um, even if it has been said by human rights groups. The number of those killed during the riots um, have also been played up. And you see something important um, played out during the riots. Uh, despite high tension during the riots, uh, the police were not allowed to carry um, firearms. However, um, American and Israeli armament came through um, from some of our neighboring countries uh, with uh, little stability. Now, what they did was to wreak havoc amongst the mobs and masses and, in fact, resorted to the weapon armament in question. I want to follow up on what you're saying about weapons and the world that the U.S., you are alleging, played. But it, I, it strikes me that we are citing different numbers of what happened, of how many were killed. And it strikes me that part of the challenge may be that journalists have not been able to freely cover these protests. Um, the Committee to Protect Journalists says 93 journalists have been detained in Iran. That is as of January. Another journalist, Elnaz Mohammadi, was arrested on Sunday. Why are journalists here in Iran being prevented from doing their jobs? We cannot confirm the detention of journalists in Iran. Um, it's very easy to relabel um, the person who has been detained. You could uh, at any moment call that person in question a uh, defendant of human rights, a journalist, among others. 93 and counting? Uh, no journalist was detained during riots. You see, just two weeks ago, something happened in Iran. A scammer was to flee Iran. Uh, what he did um, in order to help uh, his escape was to post uh, videos on social media saying that, claiming 
that he was a protester, that he was uh, subjected to torture. But in fact, he was a scammer and a um, fraudulent person. And at the end of the day, it turned out that uh, he was frightened. He was arrested by the police. You see, the West has carefully and meticulously targeted um, the riots. Allow me to ask this question to you. You see, there was a lot of maneuver on Mahsa Amini by Western media. But when it comes to Shirin Abu Aghle, did, did they really cover her? Forgive me, forgive me. If I may, I will ask the questions. by the Israeli police. I will ask the questions, and I will just, to, to end the questioning about journalists, I will say journalists who have been detained and now released on bond are confirming that they are journalists and they were detained in these protests. But let me, you mentioned the role that you believe the U.S. has played. In our time in Iran, we have interviewed many people now and asked them why they are angry. They cite repression, they cite inequality, they cite economic mismanagement. Um, we asked one young man, who do you blame for your problems? He said the regime, your government, not the United States. To the young man who blames the regime for his problems, you say what? Um, first of all, it's not a regime. In Iran, we have a sovereign, legitimate, and legal um, government. And therefore, I would like to urge um, that you also use the correct um, words. I was quoting someone directly who was speaking to me. But the people in Iran don't speak like that. Anyway, we admit that there are problems in Iran, just like elsewhere in the world. Back in September, when I was in New York, um, I happened to have the opportunity to roam about a little bit um, in New York and um, see the underground stations um, past midnight. Um, I, in fact, uh, talked to some of the citizens. And the responses I got from American nationals were worse than the and response that you got from that Iranian man. And therefore, it, it pretty much depends on which uh, population sample you choose for your interviews. This constitutes an important part of democracy in Iran. People can freely voice their ideas. Part one of our conversation here in Tehran with Hossein Amir Abdullahian. He is the foreign minister of Iran. Tomorrow, we push him on whether people in Iran can freely voice their ideas. People told us this repeatedly. When we asked to interview them, they pointed up and pointed at cameras. They're watching, they're watching, they're watching. Then you could interview them um, on a blind spot. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Many college students do not have enough to eat. A 2020 survey by Temple University found about a third of students in higher ed nationwide experienced food insecurity. Some have been eligible for a federal emergency food subsidy during the pandemic, but that's coming to an end. Katie Riddle reports from Portland, Oregon. As a high school student, Brian Montes didn't think college was in the cards for him. He wanted to go, but he didn't see a path. I'm a person of color. I'm brown. I am son of undocumented immigrants. I am a first-generation American, first-generation student. I also identify like I'm openly gay. I also low income. 
Montes decided to try anyway. He started college at Portland State University in the early months of the pandemic. Financially, he's on his own. 0.91 pounds. He puts two zucchini on the scale at the grocery store. He's checking out. So that was 152. One thing that's helped him get by these last few years is a federal food benefit called SNAP. Total on SNAP was about $20.15. SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Montez used it on this day to buy the squash, a can of minestrone soup, a container of hummus, and some granola bars. He glances down at his receipt. First thing I always do immediately after, check how much. How much you spent? Uh, how much I've left. SNAP helps more than 40 million people across the country buy food. When COVID hit, the federal government increased the benefit and expanded eligibility. College students like Montez benefited from this pandemic safety net. It's set to expire at the end of February. Currently, he gets close to $250 a month. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm really terrified. Montez could see that drop to less than $100 a month. I'm doing well enough right now in the sense that through the help that I'm getting and, and my jobs that I have, I'm surviving. Recently, at least 100 students a day have been visiting a food pantry at Portland State University. Trenna Wilson is the manager there. She says given higher food prices, students are already struggling. Sometimes this is the first time they've experienced that. Wilson gestures to shelves of beans and rice, ready-made soup. She anticipates demand will increase once the SNAP benefit expires. And they feel really ashamed. They feel that they've done something wrong. Can you see that in their body language when they come in? We can. We've had more than one instance of tears. Yeah, I'm really concerned about it. Suzanne Bonamici is a Democratic congresswoman in Oregon. She recently proposed legislation that would require colleges to let students know when they qualify for SNAP. She has personal experience with the issue. When I was a community college student years ago, if I had not had what was then called food stamps, um, I would have been really hungry. But there's no solution on the horizon for students like Brian Montez at Portland State University. He's now in his third year of college, double majoring in political science and social science. I love who I am because of who I am. He's changed his mind about that list of qualities he used to think of as liabilities. Gay, Latino, low income, first in his family to go to college. I do think about that, but on the flip side, in that, wow, I really got myself here. Wow, I'm really doing this. I have found a lot of self-worth in that. He says he might not have discovered this new version of himself if he were busy worrying about having enough to eat. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Portland, Oregon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, financial planning for new parents inside a pediatric clinic. That's coming up in four minutes. And stay with WBR this evening while you fix dinner. We'll have more on the State of the Union address last night, including the apparent agreement about zero cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Is Medicaid safe? That's coming up in about 15 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. 
Celtics host the surging Philadelphia 76ers tonight at the Garden, 7.30 game time. Tonight, clear skies down around 32 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds slowly move in for the majority of the day, right about the mid-40s once again. Temperatures on the rise Thursday night and wind up about 57 degrees during the day on Friday. 46 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. It's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of podcasts at WBUR. My mother turns 80 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who made pink bread with my daughter a few weeks ago. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and the world. If there's someone like that from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Tonight, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Paris, the second stop in a European tour and a rare trip outside Ukraine. But he started the day in London, where he addressed British politicians in Westminster and thanked them for their support. And he made an impassioned plea for his country to be supplied with fighter jets. He told his audience, we have freedom give us wings to protect. To protect it, Willem Marx reports from London. Slava Ukraina. Mr. President, please. President Zelensky has often said Britain's one of his country's best allies and among the biggest supporters of the Ukrainian war effort. In his address to hundreds of UK legislators, he praised Great Britain's grit as well as its role in rallying support for his military months ahead of Russia's invasion last year. You were among those where if you who had helped before the large-scale invasion began exactly as it will be necessary every time in the future to prevent aggression from happening. Your help was preventive. Earlier Wednesday, Zelensky had met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Thanks to Britain's own political turmoil, Sunak recently became the third Downing Street resident since the war began. But by maintaining consistent support for Kiev, he already commands his Ukrainian counterpart's approval. Ukrainian soldiers are being trained in Britain, in particular, to operate Challengers, your main battle tanks. It's a tank coalition in action. Thank you very much for this powerful defensive step. Sunak's government promised that training on Challenger tanks just last month, but today went even further, offering combat pilot courses for Ukraine's air aces. Jamie Shea, a researcher at British think tank Chatham House, says this seemingly simple offer could signify something much more serious. It sends an important political signal, uh, first of all to the Ukrainians, that the whole notion of aircraft is not being ruled out, never say never. Uh, And secondly, it sends an important signal to the Russians that the Western partners of Ukraine have not yet reached the limit of the kinds of capabilities that they're willing to give Ukraine. Russia responded to those apparent signals swiftly, saying any future delivery of fighter jets from Britain to Ukraine would have military and political consequences for all of Europe. 
Neil Melman, the Director for International Security at the UK's Royal United Services Institute, says such consequences may ultimately be part of the plan to help Ukraine transition from Soviet-era systems to newer NATO weaponry. It's about the long-term security relationship of Ukraine to the transatlantic community, because this is about decades of relationships being built up around these kind of systems. And as Zelensky visits Paris tonight to meet French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he may well make the argument for arming Ukraine even more aggressively, according to Camille Gran, NATO's former Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment. As we realize that the Ukrainians are, are superbly uh, defending themselves, it sort of makes sense to give them weaponry that requires a lengthy training and uh, to build up their ability to, to do so in the long run. The implications, say Grand and others, is that this conflict could well continue for years to come and better air combat capabilities may one day be necessary for it to end. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. Most parents don't go to the pediatrician's office for financial advice, but a new study suggests it may be what some parents need. NPR's Ping Huang reports on an experiment that aims to ease the money strain on new parents and improve infant health. Four years ago, Chris and Daisy Quitco had a baby girl. They brought her to their pediatrician for her one-month appointment. We're expecting crying babies and flu shots, (laughs) you know. And while doctors and crying babies were part of it, they also got paired with a personal financial coach. We never expected this type of program. Walking into a clinic like that and being able to speak to someone about what we're going through, especially our life experiences and and debt or, or finances. At the time, they had lots of debt and bad credit scores. Chris worked as a repairman and picked up shifts driving for Uber. Daisy stayed home with the baby. My husband was just living paycheck to paycheck. And that's the time the financial counseling helps us a lot to prioritize. Yeah, that's the word, to prioritize what it's need, to prioritize um, for us to save money to. The Quitcos had come across an experimental program based at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, not far from where they live in Compton, California. Dr. Adam Shikadans is the pediatrician and researcher who helped start it. He says the clinic pairs low-income parents with financial coaches to help with the biggest problems these parents face. Food insecurity, housing insecurity, transportation issues, utility bill, all of those, you know, at their core have a financial component. Shikadans and his team started the experiment in 2018. They recruited 80 families with new babies, half were paired with financial coaches, and the other half got regular care. The difference showed up quickly. A new paper published in the journal Pediatrics finds the families with financial coaches came to more of their babies' preventive care visits and missed fewer vaccinations in the first six months. It was somewhat unexpected that there would be such a strong impact on retention and care and and no-show rates in our clinic, Uh, but it's nice to see. The families with financial coaches also increased their average monthly income by over $1,700, and they saved more money than those without. Dr. Tamani Coker, a researcher at the University of Washington, says the study adds to existing research that shows that non-medical staff, like social workers, can add value to health care. When you expand the team who's providing care for families in early childhood, 
you can make the well childcare experience more meaningful. And when people find things more meaningful, they come. Coker says the challenge is getting non-medical workers paid for in a clinical setting. For Chris Quitco, getting a financial coach at the doctor's office was a lifeline for his family. After completing the program the first time around, he kept signing up. To be honest with you, we've actually graduated twice, but we uh, insisted on staying with them because there's so much uh, resources and, and help that we get from them that it's so hard to leave. Their financial coach helped get their daughter into free daycare. His wife, Daisy, is now pursuing her nursing license. Chris got promoted at work, and he's raised his credit score from terrible to near perfect. And while the last few years have not been easy, their daughter is warm and well-fed, and Chris is healthier and sleeping better than he ever has. A lot of the stress levels have practically depleted to nothing. Now, at 38 years old, Chris says he's on solid financial ground for the first time in his life. And his daughter is loving the daycare they found through their financial coach. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime, from anywhere, with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. This is WBUR. We've got a waning gibbous moon tonight. That's the first phase after the full moon. Should be clear and calm, right about freezing overnight. Clouds should increase through the day tomorrow with highs right back around the mid-40s. Temperatures creep to the low 50s tomorrow night and the mid-50s for Friday. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities and Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden says in his State of the Union speech that he and Republicans in Congress are in agreement. There will be no cuts to Medicare or Social Security related to the debt ceiling. Experts wonder if that means Medicaid might be cut. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, February 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden and Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders had very different takes on the state of the economy last night. We'll fact check their claims. And an earthquake in a war zone. The U.N. has struggled to aid Syrians in the midst of the civil war. And this week's earthquake is making it even tougher for millions of people to get help. It's an active war zone, and our main objective and interest is the people and making sure that we reach them and staying away from the politics. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The official death toll from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria continues to rise, now at at least 12,000 people. NPR's Jason Bobian in central Turkey says cold temperatures and snow are hampering rescue efforts. The temperatures in the quake-affected parts of Turkey remain in the 20s and 30s as search and rescue teams attempt to extract more survivors from collapsed buildings. Snow is forecast in the region through Thursday. Drone footage from near the epicenter of the quake show entire city blocks reduced to rubble and tent shelters set up on the playing field of a soccer stadium. The exact number of buildings that were damaged or destroyed is still being calculated, but the Turkish government says more than 13 million people have been affected in Turkey alone. Millions more were rattled by the massive quake in Syria. Relief teams from Turkey and around the world are fanning out in the disaster zone that Turkish officials say spans more than 280 square miles. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kayseri. Turkey. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise address to British lawmakers in London today as the U.K. offered to train Ukrainian pilots to fly NATO standard fighter jets. Empire's Frank Lankford reports from eastern Ukraine in the city of Kramatorsk. Zelensky arrived to a standing ovation. In his speech, he highlighted Britain's early support in the war against Russia. London has stood with Kyiv since day one. From the first seconds and minutes of the full-scale war, Great Britain, you extended your helping hand when the world had not yet come to understand how to react. As always, Zelensky took the opportunity to ask for more weapons, in this case, fighter jets. As the war approaches the one-year mark, Russian troops continue to build up here in the Donbass in advance of what Ukraine warns could be a major offensive. Frank Langford, NPR News. Kramatorsk. The Libyan man accused of making a bomb that exploded on board a Pan Am passenger jet over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 has pleaded not guilty in federal court in Washington. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. The defendant, Abu Aguila Mohammed Masoud Kher al-Marimi, was extradited to the United States in December. He's facing several criminal charges connected to the Lockerbie bombing, including destruction of an aircraft resulting in death. 270 people were killed in the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. That includes 190 Americans. At a hearing at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., the 71-year-old Marimi wore a green prison jumpsuit and had a mask over his white beard. His attorneys entered a plea of not guilty to the charges against him. The judge says Marimi is due back in court in two weeks to determine whether he should remain in custody pending trial. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks slid as investors continue to parse the latest earnings news. The Dow down 207 points. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Mayor Michelle Wu says Boston's unemployment rate is back to pre-pandemic levels and workforce shortages are challenging employers. Wu made the remarks today in Boston to the New England Council, a gathering of regional business leaders. The mayor also took the opportunity to talk about the city's legislative agenda, which includes a proposed municipal fee for some real estate transactions of $2 million or more that would generate the type of sustainable funding pipeline to replace what we are currently using from federal recovery funds and ARPA funds, that will, that will be used up in the next two to three years. The mayor calls the city's housing shortage one of the biggest threats to the region's economy. Boston's fee proposal is before state lawmakers. Now they have to approve the plan for it to take effect. The state's Cannabis Control Commission will meet tomorrow to consider whether three pandemic-era policies will stick around. The rules allow for the prescription of medical marijuana by telemedicine and let medical marijuana dispensaries sell products curbside. The COVID rules were set to expire at the end of last year, but the commission has extended them until at least tomorrow's meeting. Artificial intelligence will be on the lookout for endangered whales off the coast of Massachusetts. Charles River Analytics is testing video cameras and electronic sensors that will help boat crews detect North Atlantic right whales in their vicinity and avoid collisions. Ross Eaton is a scientist at the research firm. He has the job of teaching the artificial intelligence in cameras and sensors how to identify whales. He feeds the technology with photos of situations where whales are present, but the human eye can barely spot them. So we worked diligently on collecting representative data that showed whales that weren't just leaping out of the water, but were, again, just these challenging little um, slivers of back popping out. Eden says the project should be beneficial around Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard, where whales frequently come close to shore, and offshore projects such as wind farms. Grammy and Oscar award-winning musician John Williams is celebrating his 91st birthday today. The former Boston Pops conductor and composer is well known for his famous movie scores, including the theme from E.T., heard on this 1982 radio broadcast. Recording is one of more than 200 Williams conducted from the late 1970s to early 90s, which the Boston Symphony Orchestra is now digitizing. The orchestra announced today the process is nearly complete. The public will eventually be able to access the recordings online. And singer Brandi Carlisle will be making her way back to Massachusetts this summertime. Carlisle performed at Governor Maura Healy's inauguration last month. She will headline the Levitate Music Festival in Marshfield this July. Other acts announced today include Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio and Ziggy Marley and Shaky Graves. Tickets go on sale tomorrow for the festival. In the forecast, tonight should be clear, pretty nice night down around freezing. Tomorrow, some sunshine in the morning, then clouds move in. The off chance of rain in the afternoon, temperatures in the mid-40s. Unseasonably mild temperatures continuing into Friday could move to the mid-50s. 44 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden's State of the Union speech and the Republican response offered two very different views on the U.S. economy. 
Biden sketched a rosy picture on Jobs for America, while Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders described a dumpster fire of runaway prices. Neither version is complete by itself, and neither captures Americans' complicated feelings about the economy. Here to fill in the gaps is NPR Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So let's start off with the president. He boasted about low unemployment and a record number of new jobs. And here's some of what Biden had to say. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. More jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years. So, Scott, let's do a quick fact check. Are the president's numbers correct? The numbers are right, but they do need some context. Uh, Job growth has been strong. Last month alone, employers added more than half a million jobs. Unemployment's fallen to its lowest level since 1969. Of course, presidents don't get all the credit for creating jobs, and a lot of that growth reflects the rebound from a very sharp loss of jobs in the early months of the pandemic, a rebound that began before Biden took office. So it's not really accurate for him to say the economy was reeling when he was sworn in. Uh, It's true the recovery had temporarily stalled in that winter of 2020 when COVID was raging. Uh, The economy actually lost about a quarter million jobs the month before Biden's inauguration. But it quickly regained its footing as vaccines were rolled out, and it's continued a strong comeback ever since. As we said, Governor Sanders, who many may remember, also served as press secretary for former President Trump, paints a much darker picture of the economy and the culture. Let's hear some of what she had to say last night. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. But you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another. Let's focus in on the gas and groceries part of that statement for a second. How much are people being crushed by rising prices? Inflation is a serious problem. Of course, gasoline prices hit a record high last summer. Uh, Overall, inflation topped out about the same time, above 9%. In Sanders' telling, that is entirely the fault of Democratic spending bills like the American Rescue Plan. Harvard economist Greg Mankiw, who served in the George W. Bush White House, offered a more nuanced assessment today at the Brookings Institution. I voted for Joe Biden, by the way, so I'm not here as a partisan. But I thought the American Rescue Plan was too big. Now, I don't think the aggregate demand was the full part of the inflation surge, but I think fiscal policy does deserve some of the blame for the inflation surge. Other factors behind inflation, of course, include the pandemic itself, which snarled supply chains and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Scott, looking at polls, they suggest that a lot of people just aren't feeling very good about the economy. Why is that? Yeah, a new Gallup poll shows half of all Americans believe their personal financial situation has gotten worse over the last year, while barely a third say they're better off. Inflation certainly a big part of that. More than six in 10 lower-income Americans say they're worse off, and lower-income families are particularly hard hit when gas prices go up or rents go up. Wealthier Americans may be unhappy because their stock portfolios took a beating last year, and, of course, worries about a possible recession may be casting a shadow as well. How is all of that impacting President Biden's approval rating? It's not good. Biden's overall approval rating is in the low to mid 40s. His approval rating on the economy is worse. But there is a chance for a turnaround here. Uh, As Biden himself stressed in the speech last night, uh, inflation is coming down. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 from their peak. Food inflation is coming down. Not fast enough, but coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months. Our take-home pay has gone up. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said yesterday he also expects to see significant progress on inflation this year. 
And as gloomy as many people are about the economy right now, that Gallup poll does find some optimism about the future. Six in 10 people say they expect to be in better financial shape a year from now. If so, moods could be a lot brighter right around the time of the 2024 election. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. One of the most memorable moments in President Biden's address came when he mentioned that some Republicans want to cut Medicare and Social Security before they'll vote to raise the debt ceiling. Republicans in the chamber booed loudly and called him a liar, and the president responded. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. Well, as NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin explains, there's another federal health program that may still be on the table for cuts. If you want to cut federal spending, as House Republicans say they do, there aren't so many places to look, says Larry Levitt, executive vice president for health policy at KFF. If you take Medicare and Social Security off the table and probably defense spending as well, and tax increases, the next biggest chunk of the federal budget is Medicaid. Medicaid provides health insurance for low-income Americans. It's funded in part by states and in part by the federal government, and a lot of people are enrolled. Currently, more than one in four Americans, 91 million people, compared to 65 million in Medicare. There have been proposals to cap federal spending on Medicaid or convert it into a block grant to states for decades. I mean, this goes back to when Ronald Reagan was was president. Uh, And in every case, these proposals have failed because of substantial political pushback. Just ask the man currently looking for federal spending cuts, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. In 2017, when Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act and cut federal Medicaid spending, McCarthy told CNN this. We're not taking a benefit away. Nobody on Medicaid is going to be taken away. And in the end, the effort failed and Medicaid remained intact. Levitt says at the time, the cuts to Medicaid got opposition from a huge range of folks. From advocates for low-income people, from hospitals, from nursing homes, but also from governors, including Republican governors and some Republican senators as well. One reason? When low-income people lose their health coverage, they're more likely not to get early treatment when they need health care and to end up in the emergency room. The state often ends up paying for that very expensive care anyway. Health policy experts often use the analogy of a of a water balloon. You know, you can you can push on one part of the balloon. For example, you can try to reduce federal spending, but the money is going to show up somewhere else. And it's typically states and, and governors that are uh, on the hook for figuring out how, how to pay for health care for people. So he says, even though Medicaid may not seem to be as politically untouchable as Medicare and Social Security, history has shown that it is, in fact, quite hard to cut. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Turning overseas, there is an extra challenge in getting earthquake aid to hard-hit Syria. It's caused by the strained relations between international donors and a regime still at war with some of its own people. Aid groups are having a tough time navigating the geopolitics to get help to areas controlled by opponents of the regime. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.N. has struggled for years to aid Syrians in the midst of the civil war, and the needs are skyrocketing in the wake of a devastating earthquake. We need generators. We need to replace and repair water pumps. 
We need to make sure that there is security. That's El Mustafa bin Lamli, a U.N. official based in Syria's capital, who's trying to get help to areas in the north affected by the earthquake. Just this morning, even here in Damascus, we had snow. There, they have snow, they have freezing cold weather, and they're living in terrible situation. That includes areas controlled by the government and the opposition. The Syrian government has a track record of blocking aid to rebel-controlled areas and has always insisted that the aid comes through Damascus. The U.N. is only allowed to use one aid route from Turkey to reach an opposition-held area, and the U.N.'s regional humanitarian coordinator, Mohanad Hadi, is trying to make do. We are in the business of saving lives, so we ask for what we want and we do with what we get. If they give us one crossing point, we will, we will do our best to save lives with that. But we would like to have more flexibility uh, to do more. The road used by UN aid workers from Turkey into northern Syria was damaged by the earthquake, though Hadi says some trucks are now poised to move in Thursday. Millions of Syrians uprooted by the war live just across the border and are dependent on outside aid, says Amar El Samo, a volunteer with the Syrian White Helmets, a rescue group that operates in opposition areas. We did not uh, expect help from the regime because the regime uh, was the starving people before. So people did not uh, expect to receive any help from the regime. Throughout the 12-year-long civil war in Syria, the government has besieged opposition-held cities, bombarded them, and even used chemical weapons, as a recent U.N. report confirmed. Under Secretary of State for Arms Control Bonnie Jenkins addressed a Security Council meeting on that this week. It is not lost on us that many of the Syrian first responders now pulling civilians from the rubble were just a few years ago, helping civilians who had been burned or suffocated by the Assad regime's chemical weapons. Syria says it is U.S. sanctions that are hampering aid efforts, and Syria's ambassador to the U.N., Bassem Sabag, says his country is ready to aid all parts of the country. Any countries who wanted to provide the shelters, the food supply, the medications to the Syrians anywhere in Syria, we can Uh, help, we can support, we can work with. But he repeatedly brushed off questions about whether Syria would agree to open any other border crossings, calling that a matter of Syrian sovereignty. Anything under our control is ready and we are going to help on that. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the U.S. will continue to work with its partners in Syria, and that does not include the government. These partners who, unlike the Syrian regime, are there to help the people rather than brutalize them. U.N. officials are calling on everyone to put politics aside and think about the Syrian people first. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in just about a minute, 50 years of hip-hop and 50 years of hip-hop fashion. And on Marketplace, Americans have over $150 billion more in outstanding credit debt than they did a year ago. A look at why we owe so much. Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org. 
A slide for stocks today. The Dow lost six-tenths of a percent, 208 points, to end the session at 33,949. S&P fell about one-and-a-tenth percent to finish at 41.18. The Nasdaq shed nearly one-and-three-quarters percent to end the day at 11,911. Boston-based food media brand America's Test Kitchen has been bought out. The company on the seaport produces a cooking show, a podcast, along with cookbooks. Buyer Marquee Brands of New York also owns Martha Stewart and Fall River native Emerald Lagasse brands. Terms of the deal were not disclosed. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. Winston Flowers from WBUR support your source for news. See all four choices and order yours by tomorrow to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. Clear and dry overnight tonight, down around freezing. Tomorrow, some shots of sunshine early on, then lots of gray in the afternoon, maybe the chance of rain as well. Mild again, temperatures in the mid-50s, rising to the mid, uh, rather, the mid-40s tomorrow, then rising to the mid-50s on Friday, worth waiting for. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. From the birth of hip-hop 50 years ago, the black and brown kids who created and reinvented the culture have always made it a point to dress well. Today, the biggest fashion houses in the world want to put their outfits on the biggest superstars in the world, rap artists. In hip-hop's early days in the 1970s, the looks might have aspired to such cachet, but were understandably less glamorous. A lot of it had to do with socioeconomic status and being able to wear uh, clothes of different brands really was dependent on how much money you had. Elena Romero is a longtime fashion journalist and now a professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. She's one of the curators of a new exhibit at the FIT Museum. It's called Fresh, Fly, and Fabulous, 50 Years of Hip-Hop Style. I said a hip and one of the first things you see in this exhibit is an outfit worn by an early breakdancing legend, the b-boy pop master Fable. So we're talking about Lee jeans with permanent creases down the front, pro head sneakers, a belt buckle with Fable on the buckle. We have this beautiful fine knit sweater and capped off with this white cap. He also includes leather gloves that he danced in. That's fashion historian and FIT co-curator Elizabeth Way. Inside the exhibit, mannequins sport dozens of outfits stacked on scaffolding two tiers high. But between limited edition sneakers and Cardi B's bedazzled nails, Way and Romero point out that early hip-hop pioneers found crafty and relatively affordable ways to stand out, like custom belt buckles or fat shoelaces. Which brings us to Dapper Dan. Well, anybody who was anybody, if they were going to get a custom outfit, they would head to Harlem to this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week shop where you can get your one-of-a-kind outfit made by Dapper Dan. The logos that he used at the time were the brands of luxury, of high fashion, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, 
MCM. But the catch was these were not styles that we would have seen on the runway or in your local department stores. This was something that he created. In other words, he was borrowing the luxury brand's logos and incorporating them into his original designs. It gave him a sense of luxury and wealth and status. Early entertainers that would be wearing them would include LL Cool J, Salt and Pepper. Growing up as a kid, we watched Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, yes. and that gave us an inside look as to what wealth would attain you. It's that aspirational nature Very you're talking about aspirational. again. aspirational. So we went from seeing it on TV, thinking it was far-reaching, to now our celebrities, these hip-hop personas, were doing exactly the things that we thought we could never do. If at first hip-hop artists were dressing themselves aspirationally, the fashion brands they were representing, or in some cases bootlegging, were forced to pay attention. By the 90s, hip-hop was showing up everywhere. It was on MTV Worldwide, and the musicians now had sway. And the growth of hip-hop also gave opportunities for Black-owned companies and designers, some of whom came from the music themselves. An all-black outfit catches my eye with slim-cut pants, shiny black shoes, and a furry bolero-style cropped jacket over a crisp button-down. It's from the musician-turned-mogul Diddy, also known as Sean Combs. So tell us about th this outfit. This is Sean John, right? Yes. So Sean John is a really important brand because I think that this brand did more than any other to kind of marry this idea of hip hop and mainstream fashion. And Sean Combs was the first designer of color to win the CFDA award for design, the first black designer. And this piece is from an, a runway collection that featured all black models. So he did a lot to change the mainstream fashion industry on 7th Avenue from this very stereotypical style that mainstream fashion looked on when they thought of hip hop fashion. What Sean did was not name his particular brand after a record label or a group, but rather now take on his personal name, which is quite risky, but at the same time, genius, because what he's doing is demonstrating his personal style and swagger to a mainstream international audience. I'm there, yeah. Been there, still there. At one end of the exhibit, there's a row of full-out glam outfits. These red carpet looks are far removed from the streetwear of 50 years ago. I'm way too exclusive, found shop on Insta boutiques, all the little clothes only fit fake booties. I don't think we can leave this without talking about this incredible metallic gown here. These almost look like leaves or delicate feathers on this very structured shoulder, and there's a sequined bralette, and there's some exposed hips on the side. This is clearly worn by someone with some curves. This is Megan Thee Stallion's gown that she wore to the Met Gala. She came as the guest of Jeremy Scott, the designer of Moschino. So the Moschino made this custom gown for her. And she talked about how she really wanted to celebrate her body, her figure, her success and stature as a black woman. And so we see how hip hop artists have become the celebrities of choice for these very fashion focused, very glamorous events. Um, hip hop artists are the avant-garde icons pushing fashion forward. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how 
one of the things that strikes me is that for both of you, this sounds like this is a collection that's incredibly personal. I mean, I wonder if each of you could talk just a bit about what it means to you to be curating this collection and having the world soon be able to see it and take it all in. Well, what's important for me is, you know, we think about what American style is, what American fashion is, and hip hop is such an integral part of that story. I think sometimes it's left out. So it's really important for me for people to come into this exhibition and realize all the ways that hip hop has affected the way they personally dress and all the looks they see around them. Hip hop fashion is real fashion. I think for so long it kind of gets downplayed because it's casual, it's denim, and because it's coming out of the world of youth. So many young black and, and brown people from the communities marginalized because of what they wear, how they wear it. Yeah. And most importantly, it's not just men's fashion. Women have always been and will continue to be part of this fashion legacy. And today it's the women that are the muses of the most luxurious designers of the world. I just want to say thank you for allowing us to get a sneak peek of this space and congratulations on an incredible collection. Thank you so much. Thank you and it's just a peek so you got to come back to see it all in its entirety. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, yeah, I wanna shoot, baby. Shoot. That was Elena Romero and Elizabeth Way, co-curators of the new exhibit at the FIT Museum in New York City. It's called Fresh, Fly, and Fabulous. 50 years of hip hop style. The exhibit opens today. Uh, here I go, here I go, here I go again, oh, girls. Man. What's my weakness? Man. Okay, then chillin', chillin', mindin' my business. Word. You saw the looked around and I couldn't believe this. I swear, I stand, my niece, my witness. The brother this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. At the Garden tonight, the Celtics are hosting the surging Philadelphia 76ers, 7.30 game time. What was a beautiful day today is leading to a clear night tonight. Temperatures right around freezing overnight. Tomorrow, some shots of sunshine in the morning, but then clouds should rush in. The off chance of rain in the afternoon. Mild again, though, up in the mid-40s. The unseasonably mild temperatures should continue into Friday, where it could move into the mid-50s. It's now 6.30. WBUR supporters include WorkBar, flexible co-working and private offices for individuals and teams in Greater Boston. Quincy and Framingham coming soon. WorkBar.com slash WBUR.